0: Sometimes I wrestle around with uh, the kids at home. Uh, they're getting bigger now. I used to do it more. It comes at a greater cost these days. But I, I used to uh, <clears throat> I used to tell them on occasion the number one rule in wrestling is you grab on and you don't let go. That's, that's the number one rule in wrestling. Um, that I, 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 I've told them that before. You, you grab a limb like a wrist or foot or something. And you don't let go. Now, I don't know if that really is the number one rule in wrestling. Um, I was never a very... It's my number one rule, but I was never a good wrestler. So, um, there's probably somebody here who's some star athlete who's like, that's the number third, fourth rule or whatever. But it is, it's my number one rule, and... I should let you know, um, I I did not start out as a a good wrestler at all. Uh, My my freshman year, I was a horrendous wrestler, horrendous. I didn't win a single match, Um, hated every single practice. (laughs) I once got pinned in 32 seconds, (laughs) and it could have been 23. Seconds, but I want to remember it. I remember it. It's thirty-two seconds. <laughs> it was at Westtown. Uh, my sophomore year, I was not a horrendous wrestler. I was a terrible wrestler. I graduated to terrible wrestler. I lost every match my sophomore year. Something happened though on the way to my junior year. Uh, a switch flipped, or puberty. I, you know, I don't know. It was probably a host of certain things. I like woke up. And it's not like I, I didn't become a great wrestler, but starting in my junior year, I went out on the mat and I expected to win. It was, it was a fundamental change. If I might lose, I might win, but it was a winning attitude. It was, I'm good enough now that I think I'm better. You know, all else being equal, I think I'm better than the person on the other side of the, of the mat. And, and we'll go and find out. But I was never a keen wrestler. And for those of you who have wrestled, you know this to be the case. It seems like an extremely physical endeavor, and it is. It's a very physical endeavor. But once you deal with the physicality of it all, once, once you make sure you're physically fit enough to kind of um, generally equal the opponent, it, it then becomes com- almost completely a mental game. It is, it's, uh, it's very intellectual, wrestling is. Um, I know you don't believe that, (laughs) but it is, and I, take it from me, it is, and and I I have never been very good at like getting the, the neurons and the synapses in my brain to do a good faithful job of actually going to my hands and doing what I tell them to do, and so I was never one of those snazzy wrestlers who had the crazy moves, the Jap wizards and the this and the that, I didn't have any of those moves, I grabbed on and I would not let go, that's what I did. I did. There's three periods in a wrestling match, three two-minute periods, you know, and, and you are probably familiar with the idea of trying to pin the person. I typically did not pin anybody. I grabbed on and I went the six minutes. You know, two minutes would end, I'd go back on the mat. I'd grab on, and it was this my modus operandi was I'm gonna grab on and I'm gonna try to go to work and I need to hold on to this wrist or this ankle because I'm slow. And try to figure out something. Meanwhile, I'm going to grind this guy down and exhaust him. And eventually, he'll give up or yield, and I'll take the advantage. That was, that's, that's the only thing I know how to do. Let's <laughs> so go to the six minutes, grab on, and not let go. Well, this sermon series, this is the last message in the sermon series we've entitled Wrestling. Um, so far in the messages, we've seen a kind of spiritual wrestling between God and man through the life of Isaac and through the life of Jacob and the surrounding characters. There's been this contest that's constantly in, in just engaged in a spiritual sort of way as to who's, who has ownership of the story or who's writing or who's in charge or whose will's being played out and, and who's got the advantage. That's been happening. Well, well, we're ending today. We're ending the series We'll come back in a year and finish up the book of Genesis. But we're, we're ending the series today. We're not actually ending in a spiritual, physical contest. We're ending in a real wrestling match. I mean, this morning, as we read the text, we're actually dealing with a real wrestling match between God and man. It is the strangest thing in all the world. I love the fact that God does this to us. That he gives us these for some of us, things like Noah's Ark and Jonah and the whale, those are usually inhibitors to people coming into the faith, trying to reconcile these things. Once you're in the faith, they're, they become these wonderful places where you go, oh my God, is so big and so awesome and so imaginative. And this is one of those places. One of those places where God is actually wrestling with mankind. And it's this desperate struggle that's occurring at night identities are masked. It's in the pitch dark and it's not in some gymnasium on a mat. It's out on the bank of a river at night in a lonely kind of landing among among the rocks and the dust and the earth. It's it's just filthy and it's violent and it's God and it's man. And it's scripture. And in, in some ways... This real match is the Christian life. This Christian life is, goes six minutes. right? You're going to go the whole six minutes in this Christian life, and there really is no quick fix. You could listen endlessly to sermons to try to find that quick way to become faithful or the quick way to conquer this or what's the quick way to this or the easy way. God is not going to give us these simple kinds of like, fast moves. You're going to go six minutes, and there's just going to be a few things that you're going to have to do. And they're simple, but they're hard. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you, if you already are in Genesis 32, good for you. That means I said it. If, if, I, if you aren't, please turn there. We we're skipping um, the, the 31st chapter. And so we've skipped some information. If you remember, we ended last Sunday. Jacob had gone to uh, Haran. He had settled down with his uncle Laban. He had married Rachel and Leah. And he had also taken their maidservants as his own. He um, has a lot of children. What you're missing is kind of the story that happens while he's, the, the 20 years while he's in Quran, he becomes fabulously wealthy, uh, Jacob does. Everything he puts his hand to is ridiculously successful, so much so that at one point Laban goes to a, divining, a diviner, some kind of fortune teller or spiritualist of his own to try to figure out how is Jacob being so successful, and the diviner says to him, his God is making him successful. A, Laban actually comes in and says, I went, went to find out what's going on, and my diviner said, your God is making you successful. And so by the time we, we, we kind of get to the 32nd chapter of Genesis, Jacob is, is fabulously wealthy. So much so that at one point he says he's two camps. It makes you feel like they cannot all live in the same place. That's how big his household has become. His cattle and his sheep and his goats. That they actually need to graze on different territories. Because within his own family, there's a competition for resources. But we're also picking up in the story in an interesting situation because Jacob is actually fleeing from Laban. He's fleeing from Haran and he's running home and in an odd sort of way. He started this story uh, penniless with his, only his staff and he was fleeing to Haran from Canaan to get away from Esau. Now he's fleeing from Haran to Canaan to get away from Laban. And that's the situation we're kind of picking up in is is he became so wealthy that Laban and Laban's sons became very concerned about the situation. And the Lord actually came to Jacob and said, you need to get out of here. And so Jacob scooped up everything he had and in classic Jacob fashion, without anybody knowing, he stole away. And, And Laban hunted him down caught him, and the Lord interceded to protect him. But now, there's an interesting sort of situation where Jacob is, is barred from ever going back to the land of Laban, and yet he's stuck with this very difficult situation of having to go home to a brother who has sworn to kill him. And that's kind of where we are here in chapter 32. So read with me, if you would, the first eight verses. Um, or at least the first six or so. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my master Esau, your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there until now. I have cattle and donkeys and sheep and goats, manservants and maidservants. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I might find favor in your eyes. Let's just stop there for a second. Do you hear what, do you hear what Jacob's doing? He's setting the stage to negotiate his re-entry back into Canaan. You hear this? He's sending messengers ahead To go to Esau, and look at the language. He says, say this to my master Esau. Who's got the blessing? Jacob does. Who's got the birthright? Jacob does, but yet he's adopting this language. Go tell my master Esau, your servant Jacob is coming back. And then he kind of tips a little bit of his hand. You see what he does? He says, you can go ahead and let him know that I'm fabulously wealthy. And that I hope that upon our reunion, I might find his good graces. Do you see what's happening here? This is so Jacob. He's trying to set the stage. He's trying to kind of dictate the situations. In his mind, if Esau's anything like Laban, there's a price tag on his anger. You know, certainly if this were Laban, you know, no matter how mad Laban was, There'd be, a, there'd be some number of donkeys or ewes or cattle or something that could make Laban go, well, not so fast, my brother. Stay with us for a while. Let's talk. You know Laban would do that. Laban, that's, that's, that's the way Laban is. And Laban and, and Jacob, by the way, are of the same flesh. That's how they think. And so he's, he's, I, I think he's trying to kind of lay this this situation out so that it might help him. And this is what what he he hears. Let's read through verse 8. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and the herds and the camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left, may escape. So he sends out, he sends out these messengers ahead to kind of set the stage, to kind of play it out, see if he can massage the situation or shape the situation. And what he ends up hearing instead Is that Esau's on his way, and that behind him are 400 men. And it's, I mean, the Bible says he's filled with fear and distress about the situation. In his mind, it's over. That Esau's coming back to exact. He's coming back to exact the justice that was not due him 20 years earlier. That Esau has a vendetta, that Esau wants to to gain revenge. And that that revenge is the life of Jacob and maybe maybe the life of his, his wives and children. Who knows? He's coming with 400 men. There's this unknown that Jacob has to deal with. Like what is just over the horizon? What's coming? There's this this unknown, and have you ever have you ever thought when when there is an unknown like this, how easy it is to expect the worst when you have this unknown in your that your life, this thing that could be bad, it looks like it's bad, but what happens is our mind takes hold of it and it's spin it begins to spin out of control, and what 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 could be bad, we assume, oh, it's going to be worse, and we have this attempt to try to kind of. Just We start worst-case scenario scenarioing the situation. And that gives us all of this fear and distress. And have you noticed, by the way, that when you do this, there is no such thing as a worst-case scenario. It can always get worse. Those of you who do this, some of you do this as a hobby. Those of you who do this, who, who through your distress and your anxiety about what's over the horizon that you cannot control, you begin to worst-case scenario, you go, well, well. What well, it could be this bad. And then you're like, well, it can't get any worse than that. And somebody will say, well, yeah, it could. What about that? And the next thing you know, that's the reality you're living. And then it gets a little worse, and that's the reality you're living. And pretty soon, your entire soul is burdened by something that hasn't even happened yet. It's not even real. And yet it's taking your toll on you. It's kind of like the pain inflicted by our faithless imagination. There's two places I think this happens most in life. On the issue of retirement and on the issue of like medical concern. When people are either heading towards retirement or dealing with the retirement fund or embedded in retirement and things don't go well, right? We've been watching this. Two and a half years of experience on this, they begin the kind of worst case scenario because they thought that they had everything arranged, everything squared away, everything tied up. I had all these guarantees. They had done, they had manipulated the circumstances through their own labors and through the labors of others to make sure that there would be enough there that they shouldn't have to worry. And now they're in a place where they're not working, they don't have a job, or or they're considering entering a place like that where they're wholly dependent upon the Lord for certain kinds of subsistence, and the bottom seems to be falling out and they become full of all this anxiety. This is is what a faithless imagination does. The same is true in the hospital. You see someone, the day after the doctor says, we see a mass, we don't know what it is, how about we do tests? The time between the tests and the findings is worse than the findings. The suffering of what is it? How bad is it going to be? The, the, the time when you're sitting in the OR waiting room, waiting for that doctor to come in to tell you how your spouse did, is worse than just knowing what happened. Because in your mind, you're thinking, what could happen? Your worst case scenario, and it's like it's the peril of the faithless imagination that just takes over. And that's what's happening to Jacob here. He's, he's imperiled by this, this, this dread of what might happen. It's so bad for him that he does something he's never done ever in the Bible. He prays. Let's read it. It's 9 to 12. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed the Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. We'll keep reading here. He spent the night there. From what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels and their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. Then he put them in care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, Go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. And he instructed the one in the lead, When my brother Esau meets you and asks, To whom do you belong? And and where are you going? And who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau, and he's coming behind us. He also instructed the second and the third, and the others who followed the herds, You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us, for he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. so Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he spent he himself spent the night in the camp. Now I wanted to read that whole section because the prayer is so wonderful that it gets frustrating that he comes right out of the prayer and sets the stage you know so I don't want to to draw too much from Jacob's life as though this prayer is the conversion moment for him or a, term, you know, or a complete faith revival. This prayer is a desperation cry to God to help him in a situation that's beyond his control. It's the first time ever in Jacob's life that we've seen that he's, he's totally out of control that he's going to have to stare face-to-face into a situation, and he cannot account, he can't pay, he can't buy his way out, he can't connive his way out, that somebody's going to come over that hill tomorrow and and has the right to demand of him his life, and there's nothing he can do about it. Except pray and, and then set the stage. But this prayer, this is a good prayer. Do you hear how he says it? He says this Lord, you told me to come here. I'm obedient before you. I'm here because you sent me. And then he says this I am unworthy of all that you've done. And then he says, Everything you've given, everything I have, you've given to me. And then he says this For the sake of your name, is what he implies. For the sake of your name and your promise, protect me and save my family. It's a good prayer. All right, we're here. You can tell I've been stiff-arming it. And then the night sets. And this is what happens. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives. By the way, you see that? He, He stays that night. He gets up again that night and does this. It's almost like he can't sleep. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives... But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was was touched near the tendon. Now this story is... It's deep and it's mysterious in a lot of ways. One really interesting way, which we can't appreciate in the English, is in the Hebrew, it's it's very difficult to even figure out who's talking about what. It's almost as if at night you saw two black silhouettes wrestling and you were trying to figure out, well, whose hand is whose and what foot. The language is wrestled. It's... In fact, one of the only times, one of the things that sets the, the, the parameter for it is when the man says, "What is your name?" And Jacob he answered, and we go, ah, that's who's talking. We need to, We're desperate in the in the interpretation of it. We're desperate for those clues because the dust of the language is all embroiled and rustled. I mean, the whole. The, there's there's poetry even in the language. In fact, there's another beautiful part of this. At one point, the man says, "Let me go," and he says, "No." Give me a blessing. And the man doesn't bless him. The man says, how about he give you a new name? And then the man says, what's your name? He says, or, and then the man says to God, what's your name? And God blesses him. So it's, it's bless me. How about a name? What's your name? How about a blessing? There's this, there's this kind of, this the whole thing is kind of gripped even in the language. So in that, there's kind of, there's a depth, which I don't think we can fully appreciate. But then there is this, this, just the depth of the story. A man comes and wrestles with Jacob till daybreak. Now, it says man. It's the form of a man. It's pitch dark, right? It's the middle of the night. Some form of a man, the shape of a man, shows up and wrestles with Jacob. It's funny. Jacob's whole life, he's been doing things in the dark. Have you noticed this? He fools his father in the dark. He, he gets fooled in the dark. He's been living his own lives. He's been living in the dark. God has this huge promise that sits over him, and Jacob has said, I'm going to live in the dark. And that's how this man shows up, is I'm going to show up in the dark, and in, 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 like in your own deceptive language, we're going to work this issue out. And the man sees that Jacob won't give up. There's this, this the wrestling with Jacob. He's, they're, gripped, they're grabbed, and, and Jacob's going to go the whole six minutes, right? And, and it won't end. It won't end. And the man sees that he won't give up, and he does this thing in Scripture. He, it says he touches him. Now, whether that means he strikes him or whether it means he touches him... I, It's debatable. Some of your translations may say various things. The feeling one gets in the reading is that this mysterious form of a man has a lot more power available to him than he's using in the match. It's almost like he's he's wrestling with Jacob thinking, wow, the guy's still, he's a fighter. (laughs) He won't give up. You see, it's, it, he's going to stay. And it's almost as if this man says, I'm going to put an end to this. And he touches, he touches him. There's this, I've been trying to think, how do I define this? There was this, I have the time, so I'm going to share it. There was this, um, when we were deploying to, to uh, the invasion in 2003... There was, I, was, I had an A-10 with me. with me I right? my had my, head, my jet, and there were five others of us. We were the last guys in, like before they cl- shut the door, because all the refueling tankers you need to fight the war, you have to use to get the airplanes over. And we were the last guys. They told us, if you break, you're going to watch the war from Europe on television. We didn't even have crew chiefs with us. I mean, we were the last people in. I had a crack on my windshield, that was growing. Every day It would get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. But we kept it to ourselves because if they knew, they would say, well, you have to stay in Crete. Well, who wants to watch the war from Crete? So we, you know, we, we were all perfectly, you know, good maintenance, good maintenance, good maintenance until we landed in Al-Jabra, Kuwait. And it was like, oh yeah, the jet's broken. But here we are. We're in Crete. I'm in Crete. It um, turns out we couldn't get any maintainers to come, and so th- they say to us, they say to the lieutenant with us, hey, dude, you have to go out on the flight line and fill the airplanes up with gas. We've never done that. We're not allowed to do that. That's crew chief work. I mean, it's technical, but we had no crew chiefs. And so I went with my buddy. He was a lieutenant. We went out. We said, oh, we'll go figure it out. He calls his girlfriend who was a, a crew chief back in the States and says, how do you do this? So we're on a cell phone there's, a, there's a, a Cretan refueler truck driver who barely speaks any English. He's got, you know, here, he gives us the hose, and we're like, so what do you do? And we're trying to hook it up, and she's on the phone, and, and we hook it up finally, and it starts the thunderstorm, and we're like, I bet you you can't refuel a jet in the thunderstorm, but we don't know, and we can't find the grounding wires, you know, so there could be a spark, and the whole jet could blow up, but it's raining, and I don't want to get wet, so I'm standing under the wing. I'm standing under the wing and it's a big jet, it's 48,000 pounds right now, and I'm standing under the wing, and I hear kaboom, and I look around, and it's just me and the jet. I look around, and I'm like, that was weird, and I go to the next one, and I refuel that one up, and I'm standing on the wing because it's raining outside, and I'm trying to speak broken, my, how do you speak Greek? And it's Greek to me, so... We're just, you know, we're talking. You don't want to talk politics because they didn't like us at the time. And so we're sitting there and kaboom! I hear another sound and I'm like, what is that? For the life of me, I couldn't figure out what it was. Well, what was happening is, I mean, when you put fuel on, we're putting about 15,000 pounds of fuel into the jet. And the struts on the gear, because when you landed, we landed empty, the struts are far extended. And so when it fills it up, eventually the struts go, and the jet settles down about two inches. Well, I'm at the last jet and I'm with my buddy now. He's finished his three and I'm, done. I'm on my third and I'm standing under a wing right where we call a hard point where you put a munition up. So it's, it's right here. It's right here and we're talking and I all of a sudden I hear and it comes down and it touches my hair. And I, I, to this day I think If it had touched my head the tiniest bit, it would have killed me. 48,000 pounds would have hit, it would have split my head open, and I would have, if I'd lived, I'd have watched the entire war from Crete. But that to me is this touch. That whether it's a touch or a strike, there's 48 trillion pounds of divine power in this hand. And the tiny touch of it can do whatever he wants. That's that's who Jacob's wrestling with. Jacob, this dark form of a man, this dark shape of a man, he comes to find out as God. He's wrestling with God. And God's like, he's not going to stop fighting. And the sun's about to rise. I'm going to put an end to this. And he puts his hip out of joint. And then you go through this exchange about a name now. The story is so deep. This is one of the stories you could throw a rock down the well and it would never hit. And So what I'm not going to do, I'm not going to try to explain what is going on in the life of Jacob. I feel like that would be exiting Scripture and entering conjecture there. I have ideas, but but I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is at least focus our examination of this wrestling match on what it means for the people of God. So I don't know what it means in Jacob's life. I'm going to say what it means for the people of God. And this is, this is, this is how I, I justify this. Because some of you are saying, cop out. This is how I justify it. <laughs> if you look, what, he says, bless me. And the man says, how about I name you? And he gives him the name. And what's his name? Israel. Right. Look at verse 30. So Israel called the place Pinael? Is that what it says? No, it says, so Jacob called the place Pinael. Do you ever wonder about this? God says, I'm going to give you a new name. From now on, you are Israel. And the Bible goes, and so Jacob called the place Pinael. And Jacob got up, and Jacob made breakfast, and Jacob went over here, and Jacob had a limp, and Jacob had kids, and Jacob this, and Jacob that. If you count, and just in the book of Genesis alone, the number of times the man formerly known as Jacob is referred to as Israel on one hand. The number of times that the man formerly known as Jacob continues to be known as Jacob is like 40 or 50 times, or 60 times, or 90 times. I stopped counting at 50. That's the difference. And so what you have here is what the Bible begins to do is when it's talking about the man, it begins to use the name Jacob so that you're not confused. When it's talking about the clan, which comes from the man, it talks about Israel. See that? So when it's the man, it's Jacob. But this is the point. Jacob is the point where the kingdom, God's people, spread out. And when it's talking about that, the corporate identity, which came from this man, it becomes Israel. Which means, which means, that the origin of Israel, the name Israel, comes back to this very moment. If you were a young Hebrew child and you said to your father, Father, what does it mean that we are the nation of Israel? The father and the mother might say, well, it means that we are God's people. And and the child would go, "I, I, I know that, I know we're God's people, but what does it mean that we're Israel? And the parent might say, well, honey, it means that That we are set apart and that we're God's chosen elect and that he works with us. I know, I understand that. What does it mean that we are actually called Israel? Now, if a parent was going to answer a child with that question, they would be forced to tell this story. Did you ever think about that? How deep that is. That they would be forced to say, well, there was a a night." When our patriarch Jacob was met by a man, that this is the story that the nation of Israel has to look back and say, "We got our name there." that to me is fantastic, and so that 's why I think that this teaching it has a teaching for god 's people that there is there is a significant meaning right it meant something in the life of Jacob, but it certainly means something in the life of in the lives of those people who belong to the people of God, who are in the nation of God, or the tribe of God, or who have been grafted into the, to the, to the tribes of God, or who are the sons of God, Christians. Those people who trust in Christ certainly fall into this. We are sons of Abraham. And so, with that said, this is, this is how we might understand this story. From the very beginning. That you and me and all of us here, from birth, from birth, have been deceptive. Do you hear that? From coming out of the womb of your mother, there was something in you that was trying to gain an earthly advantage over those around you you were grasping at the heels of humanity from the day you were born. When you were not even fully out of the womb, you were guilty of trying to gain a preeminent advantage on your own might. You were Jacob. More than that, that throughout our lives, throughout Throughout our conniving lives, we have in our own spirit, by our own ability, tried to make our own advantage for our own will and our own pleasure. That's what we've tried to do. That we have, we have said, what is the story I want to write? And we've tried to write it. We've said, Where, what direction do I want to go? And we've tried to go there. From the beginning, we have done that. And we have done it continuously until we've met God. Continuously. It's all we've done. That's who we are. We start out as Jacob. Surely, we are deceptive. We do it on our own strength and our own ability. Jacob was strong and able and, and smart and wily, and he's relied on those things. In every situation in his life that's been laid before, he's entrusted in those internal attributes of himself to to make success and to find a way out. And in doing so, we have accrued two things. We've accrued a small fortune. No matter how poor or rich you are, you have your small little pile of things you've done, which we say, wow, look at that, I did that. And then we have accumulated a massive debt towards God. Because every time we've done it ourselves, we have not done it his way. And we've accrued this debt. We've accrued this massive debt. And we and, and our tiny little fortune cannot pay this massive debt. When the man comes over the hill the, very, at the at the break of dawn and we have to meet with him and he demands justice from us, we cannot pay it. We don't have enough. We don't have enough things that we can pay this, this man coming with 400 men. That man has the right to exact your life and payment for the way you've abused those around you and for the way you've abused yourself and for the way you have abused the Holy God. That is the reality. That's the reality of every single human. They were born deceptive, they have lived deceptively, and they have garnered massive debt, the wages for which is death. And a day is coming. A day of judgment is coming. The sun is going to rise and justice will be exacted. It's coming. He's over the hill. And so some of us are drawn towards the Lord out of desperation. And in, in those things, we pray things like, Lord, I'm here. I am I'm worthy. I recognize that all this, this tiny treasure that I have that I thought was mine was really yours and we say, Lord, for your sake, for the sake of your name, and for the sake of your promise, I would pray that you would save me from this. And you know what the Lord does when we do that? When, when that happens, we, we want, in our still fallen hearts, we want the Lord to show up and just make everything right. We want him to show up and bless us. But he doesn't bless us. What he does is he shows up in the middle of the night and he will begin to wrestle with you. This is, this is salvation. If you're on the outside of the faith and you think it's, It's primrose and and daffodils. I'm here to say that the first thing God's going to start to do is he's going to start to carve out and wrestle away the things in your life that are unholy, that our greatest ally, God, who is our greatest ally, at times feels like our greatest adversary. He's the one who grapples with us the most because he loves us. He grapples with us because there are things in us that are unholy and that need to be purged away. When you're you you you're sitting in, in the dark night of your life, when you're sitting there wrestling with things, and you think this is a man-made thing, This is it. As we wrestle with these things in life, why isn't this working out? Why is this suffering? Why do I have this pain? What's going on? We think it's man made because it's dark. It's God. Do you think it would happen if God didn't want it to happen? It's God. God is at work. He's wrestling with you. He's trying to purify you. Do all, all the passages about holiness in Scripture are passages that say that we become holy through what? Through refining fire. How do you think that feels? The Lord disciplines those he loves. How do you think that feels? Consider it pure joy, my brethren, when you experience trials and persecutions of all kinds. How do you think that feels? Paul cries out to the Lord. He says that that God has allowed a thorn in his flesh, and he's cried out to the Lord three times that the Lord might deliver him from it, but the Lord returns to him and says, my grace is sufficient in your weakness. My power is made perfect in your weakness. How do you think that feels? This is how the Lord fixes us. We're worried about what's over the horizon, and the Lord is worried about what's inside of us. This is salvation. Salvation is God dealing with what's over the horizon. It's okay, he's going to say. When, when Jacob shows up for justice, Esau, we're not going to read it, but it's there. Esau is going to say, Satisfaction. There's no debt to pay. Christ has taken care of what's over the hill. Relax about that. Christ has taken care of it. The work that he has for you is here. At night, grappling with you and your soul and all that's wrong with you trying to turn you from being Jacob to being Israel. We have this part in our heart that desires a blessing. It's funny that Jacob cries out, Bless me, bless me, Lord. And you know what the Lord says to him? I mean, this is God. This is God he's wrestling with. God says to him, How about I just give you a new identity? We're born into a world that the solution for problems is blessing." That's our solution. We have a problem. We just need more blessing. We have this difficult thing if we just had more blessing. Jesus didn't come just to give you more blessing. Jesus came to give you a new name. Jesus came to give you a new identity. Not to give you a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that. He's came to wrestle those things away from you and say, How about I rename you? How about I make you a Christian? How about you bear my name? You know, the only thing that, the, the saving element of this whole story, in a way, is the fact that Jacob doesn't let go. You know, he's, he goes the whole six minutes with this God, right? And what matters is that he doesn't let go. And I would say that is faith in, in our life with God. Habakkuk says, the righteous will live by what? By steadfast faith. This is the refusal to let go of the Lord. Because when when life is difficult and when he's wrestling with you and when life is frustrating, we're constantly making this decision on, is God faithful or is he not faithful? Don't let go. God's there. God's trying to turn you into something. He's trying to refine you and shape you into someone he wants you to be. Don't let go of him. Trust in him. Steadfast faith is saving faith. Not mental, cognitive acceptance of reality not an emotional acquiescence to a feel-good moment. It's steadfast faith that when your hip is out of joint and when you're limping into the kingdom, you're still holding on to Christ. That's what saves us. The man is reckoned as righteous is the one who holds on and doesn't let go. That's where the true blessing of God comes Christmas, and I'll, I'll end with this fancy. This is the, the, the kind of the fancy of the whole situation. Christmas tells a story of a God who takes human form in the middle of the night to come to the earth as a man, to wrestle with his people. And as the sun rises at resurrection, the fullness of his deity is made known. That, that is the story is that Christ has come. And Christ's whole life on earth, was he he here to bless us? No. Nobody liked him. He was a man of sorrows. He came to, to make us feel good? Absolutely not. Jesus comes to earth And he grabs on to us, and he starts to wrestle. And he says, money is your problem. And he says, power is your problem. And he says, well, you're faithless. And he says to you, you need to forgive. And and everywhere he goes, he is the son of offense. He raises offense to people. He pushes on people. He challenges people. Peter says one thing. The next thing you know, Jesus says to him, you're going to betray me three times before the rooster crows. Everywhere he goes, he's there to dislocate and dismember and make holy. And he's doing that because the sun is about to rise and judgment is about to come. The only thing I can say is is that you grab on and you don't let go.